Welcome to the 2020 Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Network, proudly celebrating 15 years. Here's your host, Luke McCormack. Good afternoon and welcome to this month's show. I'm Luke McCormack. During today's show, we will discuss critical issues facing government and industry leaders in rolling out zero trust network strategies and technologies. With me on today's show are Chris Cleary, Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Navy. Alma Cole, Chief Information Security Officer, U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Brian Campo, Acting Chief Technology Officer, Department of Homeland Security. Janaid Islam, Director, Public Sector, Verizon. Sammy Lane, Director of Technology and Strategy at Okta. And Jim Richberg, Field Chief Information Security Officer at Fortinet. Well, we went crashing into 2020. We were modernizing up and down the stack multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, introducing a whole lot of technology, a lot of it to address zero trust. And then we got uh, even a, a more complex operating environment. I think all of us probably said to ourselves, boy, I guess this is why uh, you know, zero trust was invented. And so here we are uh, in this environment. And uh, uh, I got to give it to OMB, by the way, who didn't just come out with an edict, a directive and said, hey, implement this and have it done in 180 days. We all know this is a, an ecosystem that has to be done. Amma, let's start with you. You know, you're in a very complex environment. You've got thousands of trading partners. You have the entire trading public, thousands of employees. Um, uh, where are you in regards to stay the state of trying to implement, successfully implementing, no doubt, zero trust in your environment? Hey, good morning. So with zero trust for us, it is, uh, it's really a, a journey that we started on a couple of years ago. And I think it's important to point out, so everyone's talking about zero trust as, as sort of a complete uh, concept, but really it's made up of all sorts of different fundamental building blocks of information security that we've had around, you know, really, really forever. But now I think we actually have the, the technology to actually implement all of those principles in a way that, you know, we haven't been able to do in the past. So, uh, you know, for us, it comes from obviously security is the number one priority, but then right behind security for us, where we have, uh, you know, a, a very, very intense operations that we need to maintain, uh, you know, across the country, across the world uh, at a 24 seven basis and a lot of systems that we're extremely reliant on for our field operations and to keep uh, you know, cargo and trade moving. You know, for us, uh, we start with resiliency. And uh, you know, we, we pick up on a couple of really critical initiatives that DHS has been pushing uh, in the past. Uh, that includes both the, the CDM initiatives as well as the migration towards the TIC 3.0 initiatives. And you know, I think for us, our zero, our, our, uh, zero trust journey has been uh, building on top of those. So a uh, good example for us right now, we're extremely excited about the TIC 3.0 standards and uh, taking what was you know, this uh, common set of IT services that a lot of folks were hosting uh, you know, either uh, themselves or going out to Emptis Provider where all the services are kind of bundled in one a little more, bit more generic. Now we're uh, breaking a lot of those services apart, uh, you know, taking them sort of piece by piece and we're able to move them out into the cloud, into SaaS providers that are best to breed for those services. Um, and implement them in, in a way that uh, that provides way way more resiliency than having all of our eggs in a legacy tick, tick basket, for example. But then also as we implement those um, and, and these other cloud security uh, capabilities, uh, we're doing it in a way so that we're extremely explicit on you know the right user 
and the system that has the correct level of patching and configuration management, and we're authorizing the systems as well, so that really um, you, that user, that system, that whatever unit only has access to view exactly what it needs to view, and it can do that in a way from a routing perspective that's actually you know, incredibly direct, instead of having you know, the old paradigm of, look, you have your you know, inside trusted network and everything on that trusted network is trusted equally, and you have issues there with uh, you know, weakest link, uh, and we're kind of getting rid of that paradigm to where now it's just sort of the one unit that's connecting in, uh, and accesses exactly what it needs to do and nothing else. And if that, then uh, if there's a breach or if there's some sort of issue with that one system, then it really, really limits the damage that could be done uh, in those potential scenarios. Yeah, really tightening up that blast, uh, blast zone. Gone are sort of the, the guards, gates, and locks, if you will. You really have a framework now, and it's the right place, right person, right capability at the right time. Uh, uh, let's roll over to Brian. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, uh, across the department, uh, you, we just heard about how complex CBP is, and I think a TSA and Secret Service and Coast Guard and CIS, et cetera, et cetera, interagency. Uh, you know, uh, I would say, thank goodness this is a framework. It's a constellation of activities, right, that come together. Uh, where are you in regards to sort of taking it over the top at the department? Where is the department as far as you know, state of state of zero trust these days? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to understand, right, from a chief information security officer, you're focusing on that risk reduction. You're focusing on implementing security. I think in the, in the CTO office, we're really trying to develop that strategy. Um, you know, we're trying to understand how does zero trust fit into all of the IT goals that the CIO wants to do. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out how do we give guidance, how do we develop frameworks, strategies, reference implementations. Um, you know, we're really looking at that true ecosystem of zero trust. Um, and I think the other, you know, the other piece where we're trying to get to is we're really trying to tie all the different pieces together, right? You got things like, uh, you know, cloud access security brokers. You've got cloud security gateways. We've got a big initiative to try and move, uh, you know, applications out of the data center and into the cloud. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at options for VPN, uh, VPNs so that we can get, um, you know, better access, more, more specific access. Um, you know, so, so from our perspective in the CTO office, we're really trying to develop that strategy, that roadmap, um, trying to give reference implementations out to the components. Um, you mentioned, you know, a few of the components that we've got at DHS, you've got a CBP, but you've also got a FEMA, right? So they operate very, very differently. They have very different concerns. Uh, they've got very different things that they're trying to do with their security, and they've got different operational tempos. So for us in the, you know, the CTO office, our journey really is trying to understand all of those least common denominators, trying to understand how, how zero trust can have a positive effect. Uh, but then we're also thinking about how the users are interacting with it. Um, yeah, no doubt, and trying to make it easy on those users, right? Uh, and, and, and so it's sort of transparent to them. Uh, but, you know, it's a good experience to them, but you're making sure that, uh, you know, that trust gets established uh, when and if it needs it, at what level it needs it, et cetera. And everything from a FEMA volunteer to a sworn officer at CBP, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we've developed our roadmap, one of the things we've tried to do is we've tried to increase capability as we're reducing risk. Um, you know, we, we knew VPNs were going to be difficult in the, in the age of COVID. Um, so what we tried to do, the, one of the first things we looked at was really trying to uh, look at options to, to reduce the load on our VPN. 
um, you know, and really be sort of customer centric as we're thinking about zero trust? How can we increase capability while also reducing risk? And allow each operating component the flexibility that they need to based on risk. I'm sure Ama certainly does appreciate that. Uh, Chris, how about over at the Department of Navy? You all are up to a lot of a lot of things going on over there, very complex environment. We're hearing about uh, the enduring telework uh, uh, apparatus that you're rolling out, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Give us the state of the state of zero trust at uh, the Department of Navy. I can't imagine that uh, that's not a, uh, a framework that is uh, uh, very much uh, um, embraced at that uh, capability being that you're so complex. Yeah, and, and not only embraced, uh, you know, now directed at some point. Uh, okay. If, if for those of you tracking the what's happened within the Department of Defense, principally around, you know, COVID and pushing people outside of our environments, um, one of the things we found almost immediately was our capacity, you know, through VPNs just to try and keep everybody teleworking at home. It's just, you know, we choked on it very, very quickly. So as we um, tried to, it, you know, introduce more capacity, you know, of course, we came up with this construct of this commercial virtual response, the CVR environment that Microsoft helped us get to, uh, where we were going to allow people to connect directly from their devices, whether it was government furnished equipment or personally owned devices, from wherever they are, to directly to the environment without going through any security stacks. Well, immediately, we were, you know, that was this idea behind getting to a zero trust construct, which was actually directed by US Cyber Command, um, they pushed out a planning order to each of the services to say, hey, come up with a use case uh, where you can roll a zero trust environment out to support uh, whatever. So in the Navy's case, uh, we chose the reserve community and sort of like the recruiters community because they're traditionally lived outside the Doden end to begin with. I mean, they spent almost their entire careers to one degree or another, uh, you know, not within a controlled environment. So he said, perfect use case. And actually they were pretty advanced when it came to it already because it was the way they were, it's just the way they, they, they were stood up to begin with. Um, so the Navy's zero trust construct was principally using uh, one vendor. So we went kind of with this all Microsoft solution <clears throat> to <clears throat> demonstrate that we could set up a zero trust environment. The Army chose a little bit of a different, uh, you know, a combination of tools, the Air Force yet again, chose a little bit different way of doing it. What we demonstrated is we could really establish a, a very secure, almost overly secure environment uh, that we could put users in it, in the zero trust environment. Uh, and you know, it, the, the, the guys at NCDOC um, and Navnet Warcom could uh, almost monitor every keystroke. I mean, it really was connecting people with, with the information they needed to have in a, uh, you know, in a secure way. Because one of, the, one of the buttons that we pushed, and I said we pushed the believe button when we set up the CVR environment, is uh, we knew in the beginning it was inherently an insecure environment. But you know, the, the ability to get people teleworking and to sort of you know, get out of the, the threat zone of COVID, do all the things that we needed to do to you know, enhance social distancing and just kind of get people out of the buildings, you know, we had to weigh that with their ability to be productive. So the CVR environment was this thing that we came and said, hey, you know, we're going to accept a certain amount of risk in this environment because it's not perfect. It's not exactly what we would want. But the idea is to do that and then to transition to the zero trust environment um, to, you know, continue to facilitate this telework. And, and you know, I, I think one of the encouraging things that we're finding because of constructs like zero trust and zero trust really is a construct, you know, it's not a product or, you know, although there's lots of companies that would like to make you believe it's a product. Uh, and, and, and the other big thing that we're trying to figure out is for, you know, the Navy, the, the Department of the Navy being this massive thing, well, not everybody's going to be able to necessarily be within this Office 365 environment to have that zero trust capability. 
So in other instances, we got to think about how to, how to architect our zero trust a little bit differently. And what we're finding is the cornerstone of that is identity. So we're really kind of pushing an identity strategy uh, through the department because, you know, for us to really get to a true, a true zero trust environment, you need identity. Where in the Microsoft environment, it's provided for us by Microsoft. You know, we use sort of an identity construct provided us in that environment. So that, that requirement is satisfied where... Uh, for those people who are going to have to live outside of that that Microsoft environment, well, now we've got to come up with another way to ensure their identity is solid and then, you know, architect it. But the idea over time is to migrate to uh, some form of the M365 setup. Uh, and so far, we've been very happy with it. Fleet Cyber is really the guys that have uh, the rose pinned to their chest to sort of um, uh, execute the plan org, and they're doing a great job of it. So, uh, yeah, we're really happy so far. Can't you know the the that's this architecture being embraced couldn't have happened at a sort of a better time, if you will, uh, under the circumstances as the environments have gotten uh, certainly a lot more complex. Uh, Janaid, how about at Verizon? You all are right smack in the middle of this, and I want to applaud Verizon and all of the partners for really stepping up and making sure that the uh, experience that needed to be happened for the entire uh, you know. Uh, public sector community uh, was there and available so that they could keep doing the uh, uh, the work that they do. Um, how about at Verizon? Uh, what's it look like over there as far as the the uh, the introduction of uh, zero trust and enabling that capability inside of your ecosystem? Great, thanks for the question. From a zero trust perspective, I, the first thing I would say is there's really two implementations for category: zero trust as a product and zero trust as a service. At Verizon, we focus on uh, zero trust as a service and we integrate it into the wireline and wireless networks. And where we fit into the large tapestry within the federal government is one of the challenges the government faces is contractors, consultants, suppliers who work outside its boundary but are connecting in. And as everybody knows uh, from a, a state-sponsored cyber attack, while federal facilities are very secure, the weak link is all of those little companies that supply you. It's very hard for them to you know, lock down. So we have been focusing on building zero trust as a service. So the, the, the vendors, uh, contractors, consultants, as they connect in, uh, they are secure. And we implement the entire zero trust stack with uh, strong identity verification, role-based access, as well as uh, cryptographic controls. And we think uh, zero trust as a service actually is going to become uh, one of the most important implementations, because as we look long-term in terms of uh, how people are going to work, I think we're going to get over this COVID thing, that's for sure. But I think this, uh, whether it's, you call it work from home or distributed working, uh, that's, gonna, that's here to stay for, well, as, as I, I think for the rest of our lifetime. And I think the ability to integrate zero trust into your uh, wireline and wireless service is key. And it's going to be uh, key to also the uh, Department of Defense and federal government pushing out the zero trust model through their ecosystem uh, as they implement zero trust within their facilities. So we need both. And uh, that's really Verizon's goal. Fantastic. And I'm sure that uh, everyone is glad to hear that. And no doubt, as Chris talked about, sort of that enduring telework capability there to sort of broaden outside of the guards, gates, and locks, really important. Sammy, we uh, was mentioned about how uh, ID and identity management is certainly a key element of the entire uh, zero trust architecture. Uh, what is, what's going on at Okta to sort of make sure that's available seamless 
et cetera, so that uh, it can be part of the part of the picture. Yeah, that's uh, one, of the, one of the tenets is that identity is the new security perimeter in a way. If you look at how modern technology gets consumed, it is, you know, quite different. And um, as such, uh, it's really about giving the right access to the right people in the right context um, and then evaluate that continuously. Um, so so in, in that sense, that zero trust journey often starts by by getting that identity house in order. Now, we saw this um, massively when when all this work from home um, um, uh, tenants came into play this uh, this last spring, and and uh, some of our customers were saying that was the biggest unrequested uh, you know test of their VPN capacity, both from licensing and uh, and uh, and from technology perspective that they've they've ever tested. But those uh, those agencies and those customers who were further along in the journey already at that point. Uh, found that uh, it didn't change that much when 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 those restrictions came to play. If they had already taken that tenet of saying, well, let's look at the user and their device and look at the full context of the access, then we can actually make better access control decisions and uh, we can consume new technology much more rapidly than in the traditional model. So in that sense, those those forces that had been moving into the same direction all just you know, lurch forward very, very rapidly. And we saw that uh, federal, state, you know, and uh, and local government level where even counties who had had a program in place to move towards the zero trust model over the next 18 months, all of a sudden found, found themselves in one weekend having to implement that. And, uh, and we saw a lot of these projects, you know, spearhead ahead at, at, at massive speeds, both in the industry and in the, uh, in the agencies. All of a sudden it's, uh, it's, uh, um, you know, all hands on deck in a situation like that, no doubt. Um, but even prior to that, as somebody was pointing out these tertiary systems, we certainly learned with OPM and several of these other uh, situations, uh, you know, that, that occurrence that uh, a lot of these environments, you, you, you can't trust anyone, right? Now, this whole concept behind a zero trust and this continual authorization type of situation, which I think is really important to just instill that, bake that into the ecosystem and just sort of take that whole issue off the table. All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You've been listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. This is Bob Fortna. At Fortinet Federal, we understand government cybersecurity professionals want to reduce operational challenges, make cybersecurity more manageable, and deliver actionable information. Our integrated and automated solutions reduce complexity and ensure mission success at speed and scale. Fortinet is a leading U.S. cybersecurity company with a 20-year track record of innovation. See why agencies rely on Fortinet Federal. For more information, Go to FortinetFederal.com. Okta, helping protect your agency's remote workforce and ensuring government employees, contractors, and partners have simple and secure access to mission-critical applications from any device at any time. Okta allows you to create granular access policies based on user, device, network, and location context, as well as implement strong multi-factor authentication across all apps and VPNs. Learn more at okta.com government. Advancements in technologies present federal agencies with both opportunities and challenges. At Verizon, we embrace those challenges. Verizon invests billions in our global networks every year to deliver secure data reliably. Our advanced communication solutions and modern call centers connect your workforce and citizens in the office, in the field, and internationally. We're committed to modernization that delivers better mission results faster. Verizon, we don't wait for the future, we build it. Verizonenterprise.com slash federal IT. 
Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. We're talking about zero trust. We're just trying to do a top line here, state of the state. Jim, I'm going to throw it over to you at Fortinet. You all are right smack in the middle of enabling this capability, a piece of this capability, certainly for all of public sector and certainly private sector. Uh, to just give us a, a top line, state of the state. How's it going? Hey, Luke, well, it's good to be with you again today. And, uh, you know, as you said, Fortinet is in the middle of the ecosystem. We've got a, a broad and deep set of capabilities. And what we're doing with our federal partners is focusing on helping them build the foundations for zero trust. Depends on whose model you look at. You've got, what, three to six pillars of doing it. And as challenging and it can, as it can be for our federal partners to do zero trust in an agency headquarters network environment, as my federal colleagues have described, it gets exponentially harder to do that for organizations that have a broader, a national or even global operating footprint. So let me give you a real quick top line of three different use cases of success stories that we've done over the past year with federal partners. Let me pull out, we've already talked a little bit about identity is, is a key, um, a user identity. We helped one cabinet agency recently create a capability to better enforce multi-factor authentication and to integrate this new capability with existing user identity capabilities such as PIV cards. And they're rolling that out for 40,000 users coast to coast. Device management and access control. Um, we've helped another agency identify and define security policy for headless devices on, on their network. We know those, of course, are, are a real bear. You can't, you know, that, that's the source of problems with IoT, et cetera. So when you get these devices on the network that have the potential to become rogue devices, we gave them the capability to integrate that device management and access control with other capabilities they had in their infrastructure to track the behavior of those devices and to be able to alert if they started displaying abnormal behavior. And then the whole policy enforcement and segmentation, that's another key to doing zero trust. We helped a third agency that had a really broad operational network infrastructure, a complex one, move the focus of their enforcement and policy core closer to the localized data, basically via better segmentation. So we gave them the ability to have smaller firewalls that still shared information and acted as a unified whole for the policy enforcement, the ability to have that synchronized and consistent that's the core of zero trust. So again, you've got all these pillars and you've got a player like Fortinet that can say, we can help you both develop those. And people have already mentioned, I think it was implicit in what Brian said, integration. You have these dis disparate things. You need to make them work and play well together. So we're giving our partners the ability to introduce something new and to harmonize it with things they already have and in their infrastructure. Sure. And really give them choices. It's almost like, a, again, it's this consolation. It's all a Lego block kind of configuration that allows them to enable this capability as they see fit. Brian, uh, how about over you? Um, I want to give an example of sort of one specific area that you'd like to highlight. Uh, you know, so you're coming at it from a different angle, as you pointed out there as a CTO versus a CISO, but uh, I'm sure you have an example of one particular thing you'd like to highlight in regards to something that uh, you all have uh, embraced over there, enabled, authorized, whatever it may be, to allow this capability to start to get propagated. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think we've, we've actually had uh, some pretty good success in a, in a few different areas at, at DHS. I mean, we took a very practical approach to Zero Trust. Um, you know, we really looked at, again, impact. How can we how can we positively affect uh, the security posture and the, the users 
in, uh, you know, users' interest in uh, Zero Trust. But I, I think our biggest one was, um, you know, really the implementation of those things that tie into, uh, you know, our cloud assets, um, you know, things like the, the cloud access security broker, the cloud security gateway. Um, you know, we, we knew that we were going to try to move things out of the VPN. Um, you know, but even prior to going into the telework posture that we're in now, you know, we knew we were moving a lot of things to the cloud. We were, we were closing down a data center. We knew that, um, you know, cloud was going to be a focus for the department. Um, you know, part of that is mission. Part of that is just optimization. Um, you know, so we knew we were going to need cloud-based solutions for our security. And we knew that we were going to need to be able to have them uh, in a scalable fashion. So, you know, for us, um, we really got a little bit of a head start in trying to address, uh, you know, the, the overutilization by a telework. Um, you know, we had, we had started our, our cloud security gateway work uh, going back to maybe the December, January timeframe. Um, and we had started on the cloud access security broker around January and February. So, you know, for us, that was a little fortuitous that we had a chance to kind of get out ahead of that. Um, you know, and, and we had, uh, you know, started moving some of our access uh, early in March, um, you know, prior to everybody heading out for the, uh, uh, for the telework posture. Um, but I think, you know, one of, the, one of the best cases that I can say is that, you know, when everybody showed up on telework in that mid-March timeframe, um, you know, we had, we had flipped the switch to kind of move the highest volume applications, those email, uh, those, you know, productivity apps, uh, some of the things that we had already moved out to the cloud, um, you know, we were able to flip the switch pretty quickly and, and kind of move those types of things off of the VPN, um, get that VPN traffic to things that were primarily still internal, uh, things that, that, you know, we really needed to keep inside the network. Um, and those things that we had moved outside the network, we were able to get them off the VPN. And, and we had very, very little problems with, uh, you know, almost quadrupling our VPN uh, access requests and VPN traffic, um, really because I think we had been a little bit proactive in trying to get, you know, CASB, CSG, getting applications to the cloud and, and really giving, um, you know, those alternate paths that didn't require a VPN to come into the network just to go back out to the network. Be able to scale it up quickly and also continue to make sure it's very secure. Uh, Sammy, uh, how about at Okta? Can you give us an example of a, a program that you all have implemented on behalf of the public sector or the private sector, quite frankly, that's really allowed some of this, uh, you know, uh, uh, zero trust capability to be enabled inside of an environment? Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, there's several uh, great examples and uh, they come at all scales. I, I mentioned earlier that we had a a local uh, county government who, who was facing this. And um, as you can imagine, their budget is, uh, you know, has a different number of zeros than some of our, our partners here on the call today. And uh, they, it meant that they needed to really move forward rapidly and, and use the technology that they already have. So oftentimes what you can do is really look at your whole technology stack and take an inventory and say, does this actually give me those core design principles or, or properties of zero trust? Does it give me better context? Can I act on that context? Is it perimeterless by design? And um, you can look at your whole security and technology stack and say, what if we just tie this together? What is the glue that's tying it together and allows us to move forward rapidly? Um, we have, of course, uh, federal government partners um, and, and industry uh, customers who are doing the same thing. 
at the high high end of the scale, there's an industry example that might be might be the best, where uh, FedEx, as a global logistics company, um, really made a move um, and accelerated as well. I think that they they really moved uh, all of their critical applications instead of a 14 month timeline. Uh, they they did over a literal weekend where they took tens of thousands of uh, individuals and enabled access to all those critical applications. Um, you know, into a zero trust model, and uh, the, the the switchover was literally 36 hours, and uh, I think the original project plan was several months. So, if you have those building blocks in place, in place, and you've done your inventories, sometimes you can truly accelerate those kind of transformations. And it's all about, um, uh, like was mentioned earlier, uh, it, it's not really a technology issue per se. Although we are all dealing with technology, it's really a fundamental shift in that mindset on saying, you know. How do I measure the access? You know, what are the controls that I have? How do I apply them uh, consistently? And uh, and often we see that uh, since we are uh, at the heart of that auth and auth C decision, um, you know, we are often you know used as the glue that ties that that into a into a complete uh, solution. And, and and if I may, uh, and put those operators in a situation where they can make a good solid risk based decision about. Absolutely you know, which way you want to operate as they're kind of stacking some weight on top of these things. Um, speaking of risk, I just can't imagine, again, the complexity that you all have, thousands of trading partners out there, the traveling public at large, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, you know, it gets flipped upside down. Your entire workforce now is in a new operating model on top of everything else you're trying to do. Uh, give us an example of sort of, you know, where you fit a piece of this in, in there to, and that allow some of this zero trust to enable some of these capabilities that you just, you know, just impressed upon you. Uh, yeah, so, so really this starts with, I think, a transformation overall of how we deliver network services. Um, you know, fundamentally, we're, we're changing how we connect all of our systems together. And a lot of that goes hand in hand with the migration into cloud and into other SaaS services. And, and naturally, as we're picking up and now we're making, you know, these cloud services are obviously internet-based as the foundation of what we're doing, then, uh, you know, it makes sense to be able to have the right technology to be able to connect directly into all those services. Uh, but one thing that's really, really important to Footstomp is, you know, while we're doing that, we have to obviously ensure that, that we know what all of those endpoints are doing, that we have still, you know, uh, common centralized uh, security logging and security management of those devices, uh, and, and that full picture of all of these integrated services and how they're coming together so that we can optimize all the traffic uh, while still maintaining, you know, not only all of the legacy standards, but again, also this idea of, of zero trust where they really can only access exactly what they're explicitly authorized uh, to access. So, um, you know, one of the areas where this is really, really important for CP overall is how we do uh, IoT. Um, obviously, we, we have a lot of different types of non-traditional technologies, you know, things like uh, unmanned aerial systems, you know, ground sensors, uh, all sorts of other technologies and radiation portal monitors, other things in the field that, that really don't fit the same model. And in the past, I think our answer was, well, we're just, we'll just air gap these things. We just won't plug them into the rest of the network because they don't meet the same security standards. 
Uh, and that as a response, um, it really is just not acceptable anymore. It's not what we're doing anymore. And um, in addition to the heightened security requirements that we have, uh, now we're also really trying to build better common operational pictures uh, across all of, all of the various uh, mission sets that we have. So we're bringing all that data from all the different types of sensors in, and, and we're building those common views, which means the connectivity uh, and doing that securely is really, really key. So uh, we're using IoT type technologies along with 4G and 5G, and we're able to take some of these other endpoints and tunnel them. Essentially, uh, the, the idea is go directly into the cloud, directly into like API gateways and other types of services where we can exchange just the exact data we want after we've made a, a specific uh, identification on what we're talking to and we have some integrity checks and things like that. But really bringing that data together uh, in a way that uh, we can dynamically add all sorts of different things onto the network. You just drop a SIM chip on it and it gives it the connectivity it needs to hit the internet and then to hit our services. Uh, and it really is expanding you know, our view and, and the options of how we integrate technologies in a way that just we couldn't even think about previously. Right, and much more seamless. And, and I, I, I hear you, the days of the air gap on the IoT, which are, as you pointed out, thousands of those, right? That instrumentation, you need the data that it's collecting so that you can analyze it and make informed decisions. So uh, I'm glad to see that this, uh, this framework is allowing that to happen. Janaid, how about at Verizon? We just heard about 4G, 5G, et cetera. Give us an example of where you're implementing some of this capability that's allowing the, uh, that, uh, that uh, zero trust kind of e ecosystem to start to be enabled inside of a, uh, a, uh, an agency or, or even a private so, sector so, uh, environment. We've got a lot of zero trust projects here at Verizon, but I want to call upon one because it was so interesting. And, and actually I was involved in it quite a bit. Uh, Sally May decided to move its uh, loan processing to the cloud. Uh, as everybody mm -hmm. knows, Sally May is a regulated financial institution and the regulations around uh, all financial information was really written probably 20 years ago. And the context was a physical server that is air-gapped in a building that's locked down. As everybody knows, it's impossible to change banking regulations, but what we're able to do is show equivalence. And what we did is we deployed something called a software-defined perimeter gateway, an STP gateway, which is how we uh, manage TCP for zero trust. And we deployed it in AWS and Azure. And what they did is it effectively blocked TCP uh, from uh, connecting to the cloud. So these cloud, even though these were public cloud instances, they were effectively black. You, can't, you couldn't even bring up a TCP session. And then what we did is we configured the network so that only an inbound connection coming from the Sally May data center would be accepted. Then in the data center, we set up a relay that the uh, employee had to be badged uh, into the correct floor, into the correct laptop to uh, access the instance. So what we were able to do and show the regulators is we could use a zero trust architecture to make a cloud instance behave exactly like a physical server in their data center, which was locked down. The reason I use this as an example is uh, it's all, it was all software and networking, which we could extend out to any model. So the important point here that I think for the uh, listeners is that the zero trust architecture allows us to synthesize in software uh, and, and using network technologies, uh, any kind of like physical environment in the virtual world without compromise. 
So zero trust is not about giving something up. In fact, it's the opposite. We can take things like, in this case, Sally Mae, uh, banking regulations, which we couldn't change, and actually recreate them in, in a completely uh, cloud and virtual environment. And I see more of this as the future. Fantastic. Uh, and I, if I may, that's a fantastic use case there. And, and on behalf of all the policymakers and regulators, I know they're trying really hard to keep up with the technology. But uh, the great news is the technology has gotten so powerful now you can do things like uh, the example you just described there. Chris, how about Department of Navy? Can you give us an example of uh, one area that you all are uh, um, enabling that's allowing this, uh, that Zero Trust is allowing you to sort of uh, bring in some capability that perhaps you couldn't have done uh, uh, sort of short of a Zero Trust architecture? Well, yeah, and I'm gonna have to go to back to a lot of the things I said in my first answer. You know, the, so the, sure. the Navy, the, the, the Department of Defense has always been chasing certain security constructs, right? Perimeter defense. And Chris, if I may, you, you mentioned Doden. I just want to make sure people know what Doden is uh, Department uh, on, on your last one. Yeah, Department of Defense Information Network. And then, of course, there's the Doden and Navy. Um, so when we reference that, we reference it. It's the network. Sure. It's mm -hmm. run by DISA, where there's enclaves inside of it that each of the services have. Uh, so when I say Doden or Doden N, I'm just referring to so the, the Navy network. Um, as we've looked at securing that environment over, you know, the decades, you know, obviously different, we follow different models, right? It went from, you know, perimeter security, then we were going down the comply to connect model for a long time. And then, you know, COVID really pushed us to want to adopt uh, zero trust a lot faster. But, you know, arguably the Navy and the Navy's networks, you know, particularly at the transport layer, are somewhere between 10 to 15 years behind where they need to be. So there were lots of things, there's lots of housekeeping that we needed to do. Um, so as we looked at zero trust, what really enabled us to do it was the fact that we were doing it almost exclusively outside the Doden. You know, it was, it, we were setting up an environment that lived outside the Doden to connect, you know, users who live outside the Doden to information that for the most part exists outside the Doden in some of these cloud environments. Uh, so it's, it, and I, I guess the, the analogy would be, you never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Sure. There were a lot of these things that we were trying to do, uh, but just being overcome with other events. I mean, you can only imagine the breadth of scope of priorities uh, and different projects and different initiatives that, that, that go on within, you know, an organization of 800,000 people and a million email addresses and, uh, you know, 240 networks to one degree or another, whether accepted or unaccepted, um, that we're trying to manage. Uh, so what this has really allowed us to do more than anything else, and, you know, the technology, I think lots of people have addressed the actual technology challenges and the way that technology has come to it. What this has allowed us to address at the Department of the Navy is a new way of thinking. Um, we probably without COVID might still just be talking about zero trust as a construct. Uh, the, the, the deputy J3 over at US Cybercom, um, uh, General Stanton, Stanton, Paul Stanton, uh, he, was a, he was a true sort of believer in this contract of zero trust. And I remember pre-COVID, he would brief it all the time. And that's just what it was. They were briefing slides. And we got in meetings, we listened to it and we heard it. We said, that's great. You know, it's the next thing, right? The new shiny thing. And then COVID hit and it changed everybody's thinking. And it went from a, it went from a science experiment to, uh, hey, we got to do this. Um, and again, what was encouraging in an organization as large as the Department of the Navy is how quickly we were able to adopt. And really, when you put the, when you put the screws to a military organization, if, if they know anything, we know how to react and maneuver uh, to respond to crisis. 
Hundred uh, percent. All, all of a sudden, right? You're 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 laser focused, right? You know what to do. All these other things sort of get out of the way, and and it's time to implement this capability that uh, you know obviously you guys have been discussing for some time, and that's uh, uh, a great example, great use case uh, uh, to 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 get focused and then take this capability and really take it to the next level. I'm glad to hear that. All right, we're going to take a short break, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on. Federal News Network. Okta, helping protect your agency's remote workforce and ensuring government employees, contractors, and partners have simple and secure access to mission-critical applications from any device at any time. Okta allows you to create granular access policies based on user, device, network, and location context, as well as implement strong multi-factor authentication across all apps and VPNs. Learn more at okta.com government. Advancements in technologies present federal agencies with both opportunities and challenges. At Verizon, we embrace those challenges. Verizon invests billions in our global networks every year to deliver secure data reliably. Our advanced communication solutions and modern call centers connect your workforce and citizens in the office, in the field, and internationally. We're committed to modernization that delivers better mission results faster. Verizon, we don't wait for the future, we build it. VerizonEnterprise.com slash federal IT. This is Bob Fortnock. At Fortinet Federal, we understand government cybersecurity professionals want to reduce operational challenges, make cybersecurity more manageable, and deliver actionable information. Our integrated and automated solutions reduce complexity and ensure mission success at speed and scale. Fortinet is a leading U.S. cybersecurity company with a 20-year track record of innovation. See why agencies rely on Fortinet Federal. For more information, go to FortinetFederal.com. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. We're talking about zero trust. We're just giving uh, specific examples of where we've been able to implement uh, a, a part of this capability, the framework, et cetera, whatever it may be. Uh, Jim, let's go over to you at Fortinet. Give us an example of where you all have been asked to put together a capability that's allowed uh, this to be enabled inside of a, uh, an agency or a component or a, even a private sector. So Luke, let me start from the, the top of that. Uh, Pre-COVID, I'd say the best examples of the implementation of Zero Trust were probably in the financial sector. You know, they're better, they're well-resourced, they've got the ability to put all this together. Within government, pre-COVID, it was probably in the air gap networks, probably the closed classified networks. But when you talk about zero trust, it relies on the attributes of visibility and control. And time is of the essence. You know, you may want to say, I want to do things statically, so I'm at least doing segmentation and the one-time authorizations, but ideally I want to do it dynamically. And that implies integration and automation. So you talked about architectures and frameworks. Fortinet has the fabric as its approach to putting this together, which means it's not just us, it's 400 partners in the ecosystem. So we have been able with post-COVID to work with federal partners to say, you want to increase speed, you want to do this on a risk-based basis, and we can give you this capability, whether it's for the identity management, whether it's integrating the enforcement engine, to work with things that are already in your ecosystem because you've got a lot, of, a lot of pressures on your budget. So we've been able to help a lot of them implement this remote telework in a secure fashion post-COVID by building and on this broad ecosystem Fantastic. Great example and uh, love that use case. All right, we're going to go to priorities. One priority, top priority, Brian Campo, 
for this year in regards to zero trust? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, our top priority is pretty easy. I mean, we're focused on tick three. Um, we really see that as being a huge enabler for the department. Um, you know, we, we are lucky enough to have the, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency as part of the uh, organization. So, you know, we've gotten um, pretty clear understanding. Uh, we've been working directly with NIST to, to really get a, a, a deep uh, working level uh, knowledge of TIC 3.0 implementations. Um, we've got a couple of, of early sort of uh, references out there. Um, you know, I anticipate that, that the DHS CISO uh, is going to put out some some pretty good guidance on uh, you know where we're going to go with TIC 3.0, and then we from the CTO's office are, are going to work with the components to to really try and give them um, you know a clear path to implementing TIC 3.0 across their their constituent applications and programs. Um, you know, and 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 TIC 3.0 is such a good enabler that I think it gives us a good launching point for a lot of the other things that we want to do. Um, you know, it supports data center migration. It supports, uh, you know, a lot of the, the application security that we've got to do. Um, so, so for us, you know, we are, we are definitely going to be focused on uh, TIC 3.0 as, uh, as a- TIC 3.0, fantastic. Glad to hear that. And I think, again, I got to applaud the OMB for the way they laid that out and giving you all the flexibility. AMA, number one priority, zero trust for you this year. We got a, a lot of things that we're juggling in the air, but when it comes sure, to number sure. one, align with one? zero. So, so align with zero trust. Uh, we're, we got to start with identity, right? And so we're making huge, huge inroads into, uh, I, I think, finally ditching some of our legacy identity management solutions. We this last couple of years, we've cleaned up a lot of garbage, and our identity governance is actually looking very, very strong. We're, we continue to bring in more data to complete that picture of everything we know about a user and make sure that it's the right user that's actually authorized to access the right systems, and when they leave, they're gone, and everything else that goes along with that. Uh, but uh, but really pushing our identity out into cloud, enabling us to have easier ability to connect into partners instead of having to issue people, you know, usernames and passwords that are external to the agency, things like that. Those are really, really critical for us. And that solid identity within the cloud is really the building blocks for us for the future of zero trust. Fantastic. Chris, number one priority for the Navy on a, den on a zero trust. Ah, uh, that's a good one. Um, to get to zero trust, uh, sure, you know, sure. It, it's a journey in itself, um, and I would say from the enterprise IT standpoint, uh, you know, the, our migration to uh, M365 and how it enables a zero trust environment, I would say from the department of the show, so from, the, from the Don CIO side of the house is our number one priority. But when you look through the breadth and scope of what the Navy's tasked to do, you know, how that priority gets racked and stacked against our real priority, which is get to a Navy of 355 ships. Right. So that is always, you know, there's competing priorities in an organization as large as the Department of the Navy. So, uh, you know, you've got to balance enterprise services with warfighting functions um, and there's a happy medium. But again, this crisis has really helped us get the enterprise uh, initiatives front and center with uh, the secretary and the chief naval operations. So uh, that part's been encouraging. So it's really our number one priority is just to continue to keep the, the pedal down on this. And then, like anything else, as as uh, the emphasis on these things sort of wanes over time to ensure that we don't lose momentum, right? And all, we don't get driven off to something else, but yep. 100% laser focus, and that's great, because then once you get that down and get it screwed tight, 
you can you can stack weight on that and and move on to uh, to all the other pieces of a, a zero trust apparatus. All right, well we only have a few minutes left, and we always like to uh, to to close out uh, sort of a painting a picture of the future. Brian, I'm going to send it over to you first, and uh, you know give us a, a sort of a you know what does it look like in a couple of years? You're two two years further into the zero trust capability, enabling that across the uh, uh, the department. Uh, what does that look like? What, what, what are you expecting at that point in time? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we look out past this year and into the, you know, the three-year horizon timeframe, I, I think we're really looking at integrating, um, you know, or op opportunities for uh, increasing security through, you know, uh, uh, PEPs, um, looking at trying to get application level um, evaluation of security constraints, um, things like, you know, understanding the data that an application is sending across the wire, um, really getting a lot more granular and how we're applying permissions, uh, utilizing those things that we've got in our zero trust stack. Um, you know, getting getting our data, um, uh, getting our data defined uh, so we can better understand whether, you know, a certain request should be available to any user. Um, you know, understanding where that data is going, how it's being used. Um, you know, I think data is, is definitely going to be that longer term uh, goal for us. Um, just because, you know, as we start to get our, our infrastructure and as we start to get our connectivity uh, a lot more secure, you know, we're just going to keep going down the stack, getting a little bit more granular. Um, you know, and I think that ends up uh, really heavily in the data array and, uh, and really at the application level. Ultimately, the data is the oil, right? Amen. Uh, Jim, Jim, how about at Fortinet? Uh, what does it look like in a couple of years for you all? So, Luke, uh, apart from the functional pillars that we've been talking about throughout this, the identity management, the access control, et cetera, I think the keys to zero trust are automation, um, they're the interoperability of data, um, and, and those are really the, the architectural things, the, what's going to drive this, the engine that's going to use your oil is AI. AI is what's going to give you the speed and scale to do zero trust, certainly in a dynamic environment where you want to do it and say, I'm responding in real time to what I see. And what I see for the federal government is to build on what the private sector has developed in that. Because if you, th if, you, know, if you look at AI and you start from scratch and do a crash project, odds are it's going to crash and burn. I've got friends who can tell me 300 ways they can fail on an AI project. Private sector's 10 years into doing this for cybersecurity purposes. It's become more powerful. It's also become more portable to the point where we can now give federal partners forward deployable versions of stuff they can put in their environment because we recognize that you have networks and data where you don't want even the telemetry about it to go off-prem, but still you want the capability to sense a disturbance in the force and to be able to react, react to it. And your partners in industry can now give you that AI engine that can ingest that, that can see the anomaly, and that can even give you the AI-driven policy response to it. So love don't invent it. a wheel. AI, We've got a bunch of them. I love it. AI being incorporated fully into the, uh, the solution set. Sounds fantastic. Sammy, how about over at Okta? We talked a lot about ID management. What does it look like in a couple of years? Am I, are you just going to do a retina scan and magically I'm going to log on? What can we expect? 
Yeah, there's a lot um, that uh, that obviously is, is is bandied around, but I think it's going back to those fundamental basic principles. We've already built a lot of things around uh, the identity of the user, identity of the device. It's about being able to act on all of that context. So we recognize that although we have a really broad portfolio of access control tools and uh, ability to do access for not just you know uh, applications, but to infrastructure, it's really going to that basic principle of saying, you know, what are the actual controls that you can put in place? And um, we're, we're iterating on that. If you look at like the, the NIST guidance, uh, the 800-207, there is no one um, architecture. There is no one trust algorithm that's going to, to solve it. Instead, we're really focusing on not only building uh, what Okta is building organically and it's already delivered to our partners here, uh, even on this, in, in, this, in this panel today, but also making sure that the broader ecosystem is fully enabled. So we need to go deeper as an industry into things like continuous. The continuous authentication authorization is something where standards don't exist today. So we're working with industry partners and agencies and NIST to define what those standards look like to get that, that, that future. So I think that's gonna be critical. It's not just you know the auth and OC decision at point in time, it's having that deeper integration across the ecosystem uh, to be able to do it continuously. Sort of this complexistron of, of activity, and uh, I love the idea of this continuous authorization, right? Because uh, at any given moment, that uh, that environment, that risk posture could change, and you got to have that uh, situation real time. Junaid, how about at Verizon? Uh, what's it look like in a couple of years? What can we expect from Verizon? Uh, from from the Verizon perspective, uh, we are making a huge investment in zero trust as a service, and we believe that uh, an as-a-service model, just like computing has gone to an as-a-service model, it's just the easiest for a federal government uh, for a number of reasons. They just buy what they need. But the other benefit is creating different zero-trust networks for different departments and teams. So if you take the idea of a secure enclave, which was how we built top secret networks and we have physical systems, now imagine being able to spawn 10, 100, 1,000 zero trust network instances that, that are self-contained enclaves with a set of people and a set of resources. Uh, we think this is the most uh, elegant approach uh, for a zero trust implementation because it gives the, the Department of Defense and federal and state agencies complete latitude to spin up or increase capacity and reduce capacity. And as, as everyone knows, the, um, there's a number of mandates to move to an as-a-service model to save taxpayer money and we are fully aligned in implementing that. It's a fascinating concept there and something that uh, you don't, quite frankly, at least from, from my little uh, version of the world, don't hear as much about. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And certainly it's something that the uh, federal government, uh, where they can buy something as a service and, and ensure it, uh, the integrity and cost effectiveness, et cetera, um, certainly would wanna uh, do something like that. So love the idea. Amma, how about at uh, CBP? You talked about a very complex environment over there. Uh, you know, what does that look like in a couple of years? If I'm a freshly minted officer coming through Fletzy, getting ready to get out there on the line, what can I expect? Yeah, so, so for zero trust and for where we're going with technology in general, I mean, really, we're looking at enablement. We're, we're going to make it easier for both the officers to have what they need anywhere, anytime, and make it easier to be able to connect into our partners. So I think that's the, that's the first thing is, 
you know, embracing a lot of common standards, making things just basic and easier and available and resilient wherever you, wherever you are and whenever you need the, that data, that information, that access. Um, the other thing I think what we're going to see is uh, we're going to have much, much, much more intelligence about really everything that's going on in the network. And along with that intelligence, be able to see, understand the posture, understand, you know, the, uh, uh, all, all the various aspects of all these devices and all the people and the access rights they have, what they're provisioned for, what they're not provisioned for, and, and the governance layer to ensure that that's the way they're actually being given the access. But also on top of that, we overlay the automation. And that's going to be, I think, one of the next big keys for us in security is not having people have to chase down problems or users or systems, uh, is that the network will have the intelligence and then act on that intelligence to enforce the appropriate standards and then respond as appropriate if we see breaches or other issues. Sure, and not only that, just uh, as you, you're bringing people onto the enclave and, and sort of the environment changes, it's dynamically done, people coming off the enclave, right? Uh, and, 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 and sort of that, that gets out of that cleanup, as you talked about, just sort of, I don't want to say magically happens, but happens and happens properly. Chris, how about at, at the Department of Navy, right? So now you've got this, this, this capability installed, right? It's fully realized. You're off and running. What does it look like in a couple of years from now? And uh, what, 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 what are you going to expect to see in regards to uh, the ability to continue to enable a zero trust environment and, and give uh, what you're looking for on those ships and aircraft, et cetera? It's going to change the way we work. I mean, principally, it's going to change the way we work, you know, shore based, right? Because that's where, where most of the zero trust things come into play. Um, you know, you could argue to one degree or another, I know it's not based on zero trust principles, but our ships at sea are kind of their own little enclaves, right? And we have secure ways to get them information back and forth uh, when we choose to communicate with those devices. But, you know, um, it's, it's just going to allow us to change the way we do business, which is uh, more adoption of telework, uh, you know, the reduction of physical facilities that we have to maintain, um, the flattening of our network, and really, you know, as we understand that, you know, that the, the end user, right, it's all about the data. So first of all, it's all about the data. But, you know, that, that if I can push my workforce just about anywhere on the planet and provide them in an environment that they can, they can get to information without having to come through what would be uh, legacy architecture, um, that's a huge win for us. Um, and just to be able to continue to adopt that uh, and, and be uh, assured that the organizations that are, that are set up to operate and defend our networks, principally uh, uh, Fleet, for, uh, Fleet Cyber, NavNet, WarCom, NCDOC, um, you know, provide those, you know, to make the job as easy as we can on that workforce uh, is kind of the, the number one objective. I, and I think we're doing a pretty good job of getting there. Fantastic. And let them do what they do, which is defending this nation. I want to thank all of you today for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know it's tough out there. It's, you guys are, are dealing with some, uh, some not very easy stuff. So I really do appreciate it. I'd also like to thank the sponsors for supporting us on this show. I'd like to thank the good people here at the Federal News Network that make our program so successful and enjoyable. And most of all, I'd like to thank the listening audience out there that tune in to us every month. You've been listening to the Federal Executive Forum, part of Federal News Network. Thank you for listening to the 2020 Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Network, proudly celebrating 15 years. This show was produced by the Treza Media Group. If you missed any portion of this show, you can listen to the show in its entirety and on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com.